The first question I would like to take up today is whether or not these words have any relevance or whether or not society has become so tolerant that talk of persecution is really beside the point. And the answer I want to give is yes, they are relevant and they're not outdated and two reasons for why I think that. First from a global perspective and then a personal one. Globally. Let's just take a couple of countries, for example, Peru. Just read yesterday when my new Christianity Today came that the National Evangelical Council has documented the killing of 90 evangelical Christians since 1983 in Peru. The uh, Sendero Luminoso, the guerrillas, are against the evangelicals because they won't join in the fighting on the side of the guerrillas. And the, the, the state and, and the state police are against the evangelicals because sometimes they treat the wounds of the guerrillas. And so they get it from both sides. And besides the 90 who have been killed in the last two years, three years, the, uh, there are another 20 documented missing now after being detained for questioning by the police. Another country, Romania. I got a letter last week from John Swanson, the pastor of uh, Elam Baptist up in Anoka, one of our conference churches, and he just wanted me to know that he had had lunch that week with a businessman in his church who had returned from Romania, and they just cried together, he said, over lunch because of the stories that this man had confirmed about the persecution of Baptists in Romania. In fact, he said, would you send some of your people to my church Sunday evening, April 6th, to hear this man so they could bring back reports? So I throw that out. Any of you wants to go, we won't feel bad that you're not here on Sunday evening, April 6th. You go there to Elam in, in Anoka and hear what this man has to say and then come, come tell us. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, 1980, 2.2 billion people in this world live in 79 countries where there is significant restriction of religious freedom. 60% of the Christians in the world live in those countries. 16% of the Christians, about 224 million Christians, live in countries where there is severe repression and harassment from the state. I was talking with Tom Steller just before the second service today, and he said he just read in the Evangelical uh, Missions News Service that sends out a bulletin each week that today, and he couldn't remember the number exactly, so I won't mention it lest it, it sound inflated, the number was so exorbitant as to martyrs being uh, happening, being, people being killed each year now, that there is no time in Christian history when there were more martyrs than there are now. You know, we think, we look back on the ages of, of the martyrs in the 16th century, say, in England. Why, there were only 80 people burned at the stake in Queen Mary's day. You knew the number that Tom mentioned? It would blow your mind away of people that are being killed for their faith today. So my first reason for saying these words are relevant is that, quite apart from the fact that we live in the Disneyland of the world, most people don't. And these are sweet and precious words in dozens of lands among millions of our brothers and sisters. Second reason is personal. It comes from 2 Timothy 3.12, which says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Now, how can Paul make such a sweeping statement? 
I think he can make that statement because he's profoundly convinced of two things. One is the nature of, of Christianity and the lifestyle that goes with it. And the other is the nature of sin and the lifestyle that goes with it. He's so convinced that the uh, message and the life of Christians and the mindset and the life of unbelievers are so deeply antagonistic at their root that when you put the two together, conflict is inevitable eventually. And nothing has changed in the nature of Christianity or in the nature of sin. And therefore, that's still true today. And therefore, this text is relevant because if you don't have your light under a bushel, sooner or later, people are going to try to douse it or make fun of it or reject it. You're going to find opposition just sooner or later if you are living all out for God. If you desire to live a godly, Christ-centered, God-honoring life. Eventually, people aren't going to take to that. And there's going to be some resistance and persecution. Well, either way, you go at it. These are relevant words of Jesus. And it's important that we see the teaching. So let's look at it very carefully. Let's ask, why does persecution come? Because the text says... That not all persecution is blessed. See verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Not everybody who that not everybody who's persecuted is is blessed. Persecuted for righteousness sake. So we need to ask, what does that mean? What, what is it to be persecuted for for righteousness sake? And we could take the time to. To go back like we did three weeks ago and notice verse 6 that said, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we could notice that the first three Beatitudes are descriptions of emptiness leading into hunger. The next three are descriptions of overflowing fullness, mercy, purity, and peace resulting in persecution. And argue from that that the nature of righteousness for which you hungered and then got persecuted is the sandwiched meat of Mercy, purity, and peacemaking. But instead of spending time on that, let's go forward and not backward this time. Let's look at verse 11 and notice the parallel between for righteousness sake and for my sake. Because I think they mean almost the same thing. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, in the Greek, it's exactly the same grammatical construction. Blessed are you when they persecute you on account of righteousness in verse 10, and blessed are you when they persecute you on account of me in verse 11. So I think they mean almost the same thing, or the least we could say is this. True righteousness, the kind of righteousness that's described in verse 20 as being more than the Pharisees produced, True righteousness always involves a relationship with Jesus. We never do righteousness for righteousness sake when we do it the way Jesus wants us to do it. It always involves a relationship to him. So we are merciful. We are pure. We are peacemaking in the strength which Jesus provides and for the glory that Jesus deserves. 
You just kind of sandwich your efforts at doing right in Christ so that for his sake and for righteousness sake mean basically the same, the same thing. Now, that raises a question for me. Why would anybody persecute that? Mercy, purity, peacemaking for Jesus. Greatest man who ever lived. Who's going to take offense at that? What's the root of persecution? What's the the bottom line and why people persecute people who live for righteousness? If you'd like to look at the key text as I see it, you could turn to Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. The context of Luke 16 is that Jesus has spoken about an unjust steward and he gets praised because he uses his money wisely. And then Jesus goes into this little statement about how Christians ought to use money wisely, namely to make friends for themselves in heaven. And then he says this very famous word in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Okay, now that sets him up in his pure, merciful righteousness for persecution. And here it comes in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this and they scoffed at him. So there's reviling, speaking evil against. And there's part of the explanation for why they were lovers of money. In other words, Jesus' attitude towards money is an attack on them. He didn't say it necessarily as an attack. It just is an attack on their love of money. And then in verse 15, Jesus gives the rest of the explanation for why persecution comes. But he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So the root of persecution has two prongs, two shafts. One shaft of this root of persecution is the love of something that's wrong or false. Shouldn't have this love. The other is the need, the compulsion to justify yourself when that love is questioned or indicted or attacked. That's the root of all persecution. The love of something evil and the need to justify yourself when that is indicted. And what is the standard operating procedure for self-justification? Attack. Criticism. Persecution. Put down. You, you protect yourself most easily if you can nail somebody else. Put your finger on your, your wife and her problems and you're safe. Husband, right? It's the standard universal human operating procedure to justify ourselves by putting other people down, criticizing them, or if necessary, you know, getting really mad at them to divert attention away from our own problems and faults. So Jesus comes on the scene. The Pharisees love money. He says, this is treason. You can't serve two sovereigns. God is king. You have allegiance to money. Treason. And they don't like that. And so they cut him down, mock him. I'm sure they found some plausible way to do it. You're a bastard. 
That's what they said in John 8. Your mother wasn't married when you were born. That probably worked pretty good. So we we shouldn't uh, be surprised when the effort to live for righteousness brings opposition. For example, if you desire and cherish chastity, then your life is going to be an attack on people's love for free sex. Or if you embrace temperance, your life and your habits are going to be uh, an, an indictment of those who love alcohol. Or if you pursue self-control, then your life is going to indict overeating. If you live simply and happily, your life is going to show up the folly of luxury. If you are punctual and thorough in all your dealings, then your lifestyle is going to uh, lay bare the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion in a conversation, then a harsh word or a callous word is going to be thrown into stark relief. It'll sort of stand out against your compassionate word. If you are earnest in your life, then you will make flippant people look flippant instead of clever. And if you are spiritually minded, you will expose worldly mindedness. The list could just go on and on. If if you want to be godly, if you want God to be at the center of your work and your home and your leisure and your stool, you don't have to try to make enemies. Nevertheless, if they do laugh at you or find some sort of around the end way of of putting you down, because, you know, the, the thing that you did and said was not so bad, so they find another way to get at you, you can be happy. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to deal with, the last thing, in fact, I want us to deal with. Namely, the blessedness of the persecuted. And that's what the the text is about. Verse 11. Let's focus on verse 11. Blessed, fortunate, happy are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad. That's shocking. Isn't it? That is shocking. What can possibly justify someone in saying to a person who is hated, rejected, persecuted, tortured, killed, rejoice, be glad. And make no mistake about it, he does have death in view here because when he refers to the prophets, So they did to the prophets. We know what he's thinking because whenever he talks about the prophets and what the Jews did to them, he means they killed them. Matthew 23, verse 30. They shed the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. 
He said to his disciples in verse 9 of chapter 24, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. So make no mistake, when he says reviled and persecuted and evil spoken of, he has in view death. So how can he say rejoice, be glad? I was listening to the radio this week, and I heard a, a preacher just go at somebody who talks like that. Nail them for saying such a thing. As if it didn't stand right there in Scripture. Well, I see two choices here. Either this is the talk of an insensitive, sophomoric, ivory tower, out-of-touch theologian who's never known what it is to scream in pain. Or it's the talk of someone who has seen something and tasted something and knows something that most people have never tasted or glimpsed. This is the Lord speaking. Woe to people who belittle this talk. This is the Lord speaking. And he knows whereof he speaks. It's not a pastoral novice who sort of blunders into the funeral home and slaps people on the back and says, praise God anyhow. This is the Lord. And this is a mystery. This isn't easy. This isn't glib. This isn't flippant. But it's true. Jesus said it. It should be our aim. Rejoice and be glad when men revile you and persecute you and speak evil of you and torture you and kill you. Rejoice. And be glad. Now that's a mystery. You can see the mystery if you just put the two words together like this. Glad agony. Glad agony. And there are people today who are, are so far from where Jesus is that whenever they hear anybody suggest that, they get mad. They call it insensitive. There's something awesome here. And if you've never experienced it, don't presume that you know more than Jesus. This is the Lord. Rather, just be penitent and say, Oh God, open my eyes that I might see what you mean. That I might be ready when my day comes to experience glad agony. Now, there's a, a question here of whether or not you can actually do that. Whether or not one can rejoice without at least knowing that the, the suffering you're going through, that suffering itself is going to make your reward greater. You see... 
if if you thought that you were having to go through suffering just to get the same reward somebody else would get who doesn't go through suffering, then wouldn't you say, my God, it's useless. What's the point of this? He's going to get the same reward. What's this talk of reward for going through suffering if I could get the same reward for not going through suffering? What gives a person the strength to go through suffering? What gave, for example, Roland Taylor and Bishop Ridley and John Bradford the impulse to walk up to the stake on which they were going to be burned and kiss it? What gave Obadiah Holmes the impulse after 90 lashes had turned his back to jelly for Jesus as he fell to look up at the magistrate and say, you have whipped me with roses. What gave Thomas Hardcastle the freedom to say, persecution is a precious season of grace? What's going on in these men's hearts? What is this mystery? It seems so far from us grumblers. And I think the answer is yes. Yes, persecution will increase your reward endured in faith. Now, this is dangerous ground here. I was talking with Steve just before the hour of whether we run the risk of a kind of Mistake that Catholics made, turning martyrdom into a meritorious work. I'm going to take the risk anyway, because I see it here. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, here's the key word. This affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Literally, it is effecting or bringing about an eternal weight of glory. Charles Hodge says, afflictions are the cause of eternal glory. Not the meritorious cause, but still the procuring cause. God has seen fit to reveal his purpose not only to reward with exceeding joy the afflictions of his people, but to make those afflictions the means of working out that joy. So my understanding of Jesus' words are rejoice and be glad in that particular suffering because that particular suffering will bring about that particular reward which you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Therein can come gladness and joy. It is amazing when you read the history of the martyrs, how many of them knelt and thanked God for the privilege. These were Protestant reformers, not Catholics, if we think that in the Middle Ages it was only the Catholics who were tortured. So I want to close this morning by pressing upon you an implication in this text, which is the most important practical implication here, I think. Namely, that Jesus wills for you to desire heaven more than you desire earth. Jesus wills this morning for you to...
to have your treasure in heaven, not on the earth. Jesus wills for you to have your heart so much in heaven that when you have to leave earth, you will be glad and rejoice, even if you leave it through suffering. That's the most important practical implication of these verses. Not without tears will we leave or lose her, him. But as Paul said, though sorrowing, always rejoicing. And Jesus, there he is in Gethsemane, sweating blood because of the pain that's around the corner. And enduring for the joy that is set before him. Not without tears will we cross the bar. Jesus wills for your hearts to be in heaven. He wills for your hopes to be in heaven. He wills for your dreams to be in heaven. He wills for your loves and your longings and your joys to be in heaven. For how else, tell me, how else will you be able to be glad and rejoice when you suffer and die? Is there any other way? If your heart is in the world, if you are attached to family, attached to jobs, attached to leisure, attached to vacations, attached to esteem and prestige among men, where will joy come from when it's all stripped away and your heart is rent right in two if you haven't attached it most to Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Almighty? Well, what can we do to get our hearts in heaven? The last phrase of the text is what I want to draw on for the answer. So they treated the prophets who were before you. Jesus, at the end of the text, sends their attention back to the great men of God who suffered and died. And that's what I want to do for you. I want to send your attention back. To the great men and women of old who suffered and died for the faith. I want to send you to do what I did for four hours on Friday evening. I won't list all the books, but I got out the Bible. I got out Fox's Book of Martyrs. I got out uh, Those Who Dared. And I got out Light from Old Times. I got out Bonhoeffer's Biography. And I got out uh, the second volume of, of Spurgeon's biography because there's never been a pastor in the last two centuries that was ripped across the cold verbally more than Spurgeon. First, I went to Hebrews 11 and I read, By faith they suffered mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. By faith they were stoned, they, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. And I, I just tried to let my heart get inside their heart. I went to Paul. I love Paul, especially. I know him best. Five times, forty lashes, less one. Three times, beaten with rods. One time, stoned until they thought he was dead and thrown outside the city. A night and a day in sea, dangers from rivers, dangers in the country, dangers in the city, dangers from strangers, dangers from my own countrymen, 
And all this icinged with my anxiety for all the churches. And I tried to just get inside his heart and say, Paul, what made you tick? How did you say, rejoice? And again I say, rejoice. How did you say, all things are yours in Christ? How did you say, sorrowing but always rejoicing? How did you say, he will not spare any good thing from those for whom he gave his son? What are you talking about? What is this mystery of glad agony? What do you mean when you say, I carry in my body the death of Jesus? Oh, let me know, Paul. I want to be like that. How could you come to the end of Philippians 3 and say, that I may know the fellowship of His sufferings. As though it were a diamond. And then, I went to the martyrs. John Hooper burned to death in 1555 and wrote from his cell there in England three weeks earlier, He says, you must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see and mark the felicity that followeth the peril. You learned his Lord well. Beware of beholding too much the felicity or the misery of the world for the consideration and too earnest love or fear of either of them draweth away from God. Children, Listen for a moment. There was a man named John Rogers and he had some children. John Rogers was burned alive at the stake the same year that John Hooper was. And his children accompanied him on the road to the stake and encouraged their daddy. Be strong. Don't give up on Jesus. I don't know what the words were. Bishop Ryle only tells us that they shouted encouragements to their father. You fill in the words. What could they say? He's strong, Daddy. Then they watched him burn. Bonhoeffer, in 1945, walked out of his cell on the way to the gallows and he said to Payne Best, this is the end. And for me, the beginning of life. And uh, the doctor who attended the gallows wrote ten years later, at the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Or let's come on up into our own day a little further. Consider Vanya Moisev, 20-year-old Baptist soldier in the Red Army, Russia. They discover when he's 19 that he's a Christian, and then they begin to torture him. And on July 16, 1972, they go too far and they kill him. He wrote a letter from his cell the day before to his brother Vladimir in which he said this. Don't tell our parents everything. Just tell them, Vanya wrote me a letter and writes that Jesus Christ is going into battle. This is a Christian battle. 
and he doesn't know whether he'll be back. I desire that all of you, dear friend, young and old, remember this one verse. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Go to the prophets. Go to the martyrs. Do whatever you must do to get your heart in heaven. Because if your heart isn't in heaven, how will you ever be glad and rejoice when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you and torture you and kill you. And let's let the battle cry of the missions movement at Bethlehem Baptist Church continue to be, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, Marta, stand for prayer. He who would come after me, be my disciple, let him take up his cross and Deny himself and follow me. For he who would save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. O Lord God, I beg of you, come by your Holy Spirit at this moment and make us new. Give us the courage to deny ourselves and let our light shine whatever the cost may be. Do whatever you must do by the Holy Spirit to put our hearts in heaven and disengage us from attachment to this world so that when it is stripped from us, we will rejoice and be glad knowing that our reward in heaven is great. And all the people said, Amen.